Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with Indiana Pacers President of Basketball Operations, Kevin Pritchard. Stay with us. Kevin, if I told you given, you, you knew Victor would be out, Victor Oladipo would be out for you know a significant period to start the season. If I told you Miles Turner would go down, you'd lose games with Sabonis. And after all that, you're 508 games in, you'd... You take it all day, every yeah. day. You know, one of the things that, that happens in this league now is you look at the end of the year and you say, how many games have you, have, have the, the top players missed? And, you know, we're, we're already creeping up there to our totals from what we've had in the previous years on the total years. And, um, you know, without having Victor and us knowing it, it allowed us to, to build the team a little bit differently. I, I think we're going to have three seasons. I think as, as a, an organization, we got to be prepared for three things. We got to be prepared for when Victor's not uh, playing and kind of play a few of our younger guys, allow Malcolm and Jeremy to kind of blossom and, and use some new, uh, lineup. So we're going to have that season without Victor. And then we're going to have a season where we're bringing Victor back and we're adjusting to him and seeing how that feels. And then we're going to have, Hopefully, at the end of the season, when when everybody's clicking and, and all cylinders are firing, and we're playing our best basketball by the end of the year, but you never know, you know. That's but that's kind of how we've looked at it. We've tried to manage towards that, and um, we're looking forward to seeing how that looks. You, you've seen, you know, Victor's been on the floor, and you've seen him move, and and the timeline will be. I think you're still uncertain about what the timeline looks like, right? For him? No, nah, we're getting a little bit more, uh, focused in on it. Look, what happens is you get to 90% of recovery and everybody says, well, you know, he's 90%. He only needs a little bit more time. The last 10% is the hardest because the last 10% is getting in five on five in practice. In live work, you know, right now he's doing half court five on five, but you know, he hasn't been cleared for five on five full court where he's going up and down and there's no game stoppage and there's different levels he's got to get used to. Now he's half court, then he'll go full court, but really that last 10% is the hardest to judge and he's got to communicate with us. We've got to be on the same page and we just want to take this really cautious and make sure he's as close to 100% as possible to, to get him out there. But but we like what we're seeing right now. We, we, we like uh, what he's doing in practice. He's starting to, you know, get in situations where we're giving him the ball like we, we've done in the past where he's running a high pick and roll and he's making right reads and he's making shots. And we just haven't got to the point where he's doing five on five full court. Because his injury is so unique to basketball, right? It, More it really of a is, football yeah, like, injury, right? It is. It's hard to have precedent of what a player might look like when he comes back. And you, you went through it with Paul George coming back from different injury, but significant and a very long rehab. And he came back for the last few weeks of the season and, I thought him playing at the end of that year was really more about the next year, it was. right? Yeah. Um, with Victor, you saw Gordon Hayward last year. It's taken him a full year to really start to look like himself. Yeah. What do you imagine with Victor? From what you've seen, do you think, like, it may not look like Victor Oladipo until maybe next year? It might not. Uh, I think we have to be open to all those because the truth is we don't know. Um, people come back at different levels. Uh, we've talked about 
all kinds of scenarios. The, the, the thing that gives me a lot of hope, you know, and like just in my mind and how I'm, I'm, I'm kind of feel about it is that Victor, if you tell him to do two hours of physical therapy, he'll do four. If you say, you know, Kobe used to get shots after a game and he used to shoot 400 shots, he'll try to do 800. You know, he wants to compete at every little thing. And he's looked at this as a competition. And that gives me a lot of hope that he can come back and play at a level. But I, I, I do think every month, every week, he'll get a little bit better. I don't think you'll see a quantum leap between game his first game back in the, the, the 40th. But I think you'll see a little gradual improvement. And at the end of the day, I think you just want to see him playing the best he can this year at the end of the year. When you go through, and, and you've been through it, you went through it in Portland with players, yep. with injuries. You, you went through it with Paul George's injury, and, and now with Victor. To me, what's always, for team presidents, general managers, there's probably as important as any group you have in your organization is your medical team. Without a doubt. And you didn't go to med school. Uh-uh. You're not an expert. And the guys who have to make the decisions about who to hire, who's the best at it, who to trust, I've always sensed that's as complicated of a decision and, and as important a decision as you've got in your profession anymore. I think it's even bigger than that in that in my position today, I talked to Nate McMillan once a day at least, um, a lot of times, multiple times a day, pre-practice, post-practice. I talk to our medical staff, Josh Corbeil, who heads it up. I talk to him five times a day. And what happens is every, unfortunately, every injury that happens, you be- become as much of an expert as you possibly, as my layman brain can get around. I now know the human body a lot more than I would have ever expected it coming into uh, these kind of positions because at the end of the day, you have to tell your owner what's going on. And I want to be educated in saying, you know, here's the problem, here's uh, the, the, the solutions, and, and this is how much time we think it's going to take because you don't, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have a, a little bit of a, a knowledge base, but you know, 20 years ago, you didn't have to. And I, I think as you look out and you project this job, it's going to become more medical based. You're going to, you're going to get the people understanding the body and, and, and how they come back from injuries more than ever in this position. The way it's changed to the, the idea of prevention of getting out ahead and, and you started to see teams looking at the European model, right. uh, looking at groups in Australia, like it felt like that was like the next frontier of, and everyone's going through it with, you know, the idea of load management rest. Right. There's a lot of smart people who, on both sides of it, who think, you know, we're overdoing it with some guys. We're not. Play, we're playing guys too much. We're not playing them enough. Um, it, it feels like those are as important processes within an organization as as anything that's kind of moved to the forefront in the last few years. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, for us, Indiana Pacers, Larry really brought a new mindset, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago when he got in and that he went through his in- injuries and he had someone that worked on him specifically and it was more, uh, addressing his needs. And so what we do now is, you know, and I think a lot of teams do this, uh, w- 
you can have a couple different, you know, things that you're about. We're, we're, we're very physical therapy based. And so we take the total body, we analyze it, and then they do daily work on whatever we think the problem areas are. Some, sometimes players can come in and, and get 30 to 45 minutes up to an hour of physical therapy just before practice. Uh, to get them out and practice and get the body in line. And, and then sometimes they only need five minutes. But every single day, we obsess about that almost, that players are coming in, they're getting their full physical therapy, and then they're getting on the court. And um, maybe we're becoming obsessed about it, but it's a growing part of the business. And if, if you know you've got the best medical staff, I can almost tell you, you're probably going to be a better team. How do you quantify it? I don't know how you quantify it, but it probably is. And it's something that we feel like super important. The way you view rest for players and star players and not every team has a luxury either. Like you're trying to make the playoffs and not everybody has the ability to sit guys for significant periods or miss too many regular season games without it impacting your ability to even get into the postseason, uh, how has your thought process moved on the, the idea of rest, load management, and, and, and you're going to have to obviously go through it with Victor once he comes back? Well, if you look at it as a continuum, like to me, you've got one side that you're super cautious and you don't go over a certain amount of load management, and, and so that's one side. And then you have the Larry Bird side. And Larry – you know, he never missed a game. If he felt even 60%, he would get out on the court. And so my biases, Larry's my mentor. Donnie Walsh is a mentor of mine. They, they believe that if you're healthy, you get out and play. I think where you can play around the edges a little bit for me is that you can hopefully build a team where you don't have to play guys 38, 39, 40 minutes right. game out. Now, that's a whole other issue because to have that kind of a team, you got to spend a little bit more and you got to have a better bench and, you know, that, you know, has other issues to go with it. But my own uh, feeling is that if, if, if you feel like you can get out on that court that you play and that, you know, load management is an opportunity for, for players, you know, to, to, I want players that get out there and they want to play and can't wait. And, and we, we try to evaluate players like that. We want them to love the game so much that no matter what, they're going to try to get out there and play. Because if you create a culture that you're helping the person next to you, and this is about all of us, sometimes you got to get out there and get after it. And so I probably skew on the side more like Larry and that, you know, I'm, I want players to play as much as they can and, um, but it's a delicate issue. I get the other side of it too. How much now to the control that, especially a star player, you, like I said, you had Paul George, you've got Victor, they're franchise players for you and they've got medical people. They've got trainers. They have a group that you have to work with. That's the reality of it. It is. And there's got to be give on the team side because the worst label any team can get is what like, Hey, they tried to rush me back or they, if that word gets out among the player community, you're, you're sunk, right? Like no that's, question. that's part of the balance you've got to. And players at, at, at a certain level, once they get a certain level, they want their own guys too. So not only do they do the physical therapy that, that we have, they, they go home and they have their own guys. And, you know, it's a balance. You have to make sure that you allow that. There's a good communication between the two, and sometimes you agree, sometimes you disagree, but 
you have to have an open dialogue with all those people because Victor wants the best for him and we want the best for Victor. I can promise you that we're on the same page there. What we have to do is make sure that there's a communication platform that we're all communicating, our docs, their docs, and, and everybody that's involved so that when Victor is ready, that he can get back out there and play to his best of his ability. Between Fall Fridays, anniversaries, and big celebrations, there are a lot of dates to keep track of. And let's face it, you're not going to remember them all. So when your back is against the wall and her birthday or anniversary is just days away, trust 1-800-Flowers.com to have your back. They'll get your bouquet where it needs to go for a price you won't believe. Right now, when you order a dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99, 1-800-Flowers will give you another dozen absolutely free. That's 50% off the original price. They offer beautiful arrangements of vibrant pink, orange, and purple roses at an unbeatable price. Perfect for birthdays, anniversaries, screw-ups, or just because. Picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. A dozen multicolored roses for only $29.99 plus another dozen for free. You can trust 1-800-Flowers.com when the game's on the line. To order a dozen multicolored roses plus an extra bouquet for just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code WOJ. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code WOJ, W-O-J. The margin for error running a small market team now, your payroll is in among the five lowest, the last... Yeah, we're like 28th or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you said trying to build out a bench. I mean, you know, you've got to draft well. You've got to hit on second round picks. You've got to, there's lots of things, um, to build out a bench you can do besides just, but at some point you've got to spend, you got to spend to keep guys. And so is it more difficult now than, I mean, you were in a small market in Portland, but you know, you had the richest owner in pro sports who didn't, right. Who didn't spend like he was in a small market and hasn't consistently or hadn't until he passed. But that challenge now in this league with the C, with the way the CBA is, with the way player movement is, is harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, to say the least. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I like small market versus big market. I think there are teams that are going to spend and do whatever they can. And I'm not saying that's the appropriate use of dollars either. I think what we have to be in Indiana, we have to, find talent, and we have to be great at developing. And whether it's a free agent that comes to us, whether it's a draft or through trade, we have to be willing to put everything into development. So we, we spend a lot of time figuring out how to develop. And for us, the most important thing is we get the player, we do everything we can to make him the best player, and then we let him perform. And sometimes they overperform and they get to a point where we have to make tough decisions some markets don't have to make those decisns because they say, we're going to keep him. Doesn't matter. You know, sometimes you got to let a player go, but we have to be prepared in a, in a market like, uh, Indiana is, do we have a guy that can step into that next role? But the, the, the key is, you know, you're seeing more turnover in players. And so it's sometimes you develop and you lose it. And that's the hardest part. When you really invest, you draft or you bring in a player through trade. 
the hardest part for me is when you see him grow up right before your eyes and then he moves on. But I don't know on the other side how to to stop that either because, you know, players have the right to move. When you look at this past summer when Oklahoma City has to trade Paul George to the Clippers, similar situations. I wonder if both of you will look back. I think at the time, neither really wanted to make the trade. They felt pushed into it like – are you talking about us in Oklahoma City? Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So, the, so the trade you made and then with back, and then back when you were in the same position with Paul George, right. when you look back at that Paul George trade now and for sustainability, you look at the age of the players and then what you ended up getting in Oladipo and Sabonis and the ability to be able to financially put a team together around those two players. I think at the time he used it felt like a kick in the stomach yeah. when, when punch. he asked a gut punch, right? Yeah. And I wonder how Sam Presti will look back, and maybe Sam had gone as far as he could with that group. Maybe that group right. wasn't quite good enough to win a title. Maybe they would have broken through this year. Who knows? But but given what he got back, do you sort of see some parallels there? That Maybe it was the best thing, even though it didn't feel like it at the time, that, that was the best thing for us, looking back at that deal. I'm like, Even though we got put into a position we didn't want to be, that trade was best for our future. Well, it's interesting. In that, when that happened, we, we got everybody together, including Herb Simon. And we said, what, what is our goal in making this trade? I think what we, what we did okay there was we said, we can go young. We can really, you know, kind of take a step back, really develop, <laughs> struggle for a couple of years and, and then bring it back up. And I remember Herbie saying, um, you know, I, I want a competitive team. And so that gave us a foundation for the trade. It, it meant that it wasn't so much about picks or really futures players that maybe hit it big. It was more about let's get a couple players that we can put in. I think we'd won 41 or 42 games that year. We could plug those two players and be competitive. We've had a winning record on our home court, I think, since the the Pacers started. And so we don't want to put on a product that we know we're not going to have a home winning record. And so Herbie said, hey, listen, do your best. Get a couple players that you can plug in, that you can be excited about. I remember him saying all the time, are you excited about these guys? Are you excited about them? Can they bring some vibrancy back to the team? And uh, so we looked at the map, and it, there wasn't that many trades on the table, to be honest with you. There was a lot of hearsay on what teams said. Oh, yeah, we offered them a bunch. The truth is that that didn't happen. The, the ones that I, based on my information, that I thought were there in some shape or form, there was a trade with Toronto that may have been available to you, and there was a three-way with Denver that was available that night, that those were legitimate possibilities. And, and anything you might have done I, I would with LA. Say that Oklahoma City was. <laughs> um, there, there was a couple offers. It wasn't what you thought. Uh, you know, I think teams came out and said, Oh yeah, we made an offer and they, yeah. they might have, but they weren't in the realm mm-hmm. of possibility. And so once we made the decision, we make the trade, it gets announced. And I remember specifically, and a lot of people probably don't realize, but this tells you kind of what what kind of owner we have is. I remember there was a few very critical articles. Yeah. And, you know, I had just taken over, and 
I'm from Indiana and I'm walking around town. I, I don't know whether to wear the Pacer uniform, you know, the, the logo. And, uh, Herbie called me up three straight days and he goes, I want to know, I want to tell you, I want to be very specific and I want to tell you this, that we made this decision all together and I got your back. I'm going to make sure that this is not just you out there, although it felt like me. Um, all the owners don't do that. I, all the owners I, don't say that. I, not really. <laughs> Some of them you want to have, you know, you sign in blood or else it, you know, if it doesn't work, you get fired. But that made it feel better for me. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, okay, we're going to have something to, to work with. And I had flown back with Victor, uh, from Orlando Summer League to Indianapolis to do the press conference. And I was sitting around with him and it was, abundantly clear to me that he had the confidence to step up into a new role and so the rest of that summer yeah i didn't feel great but i thought here's an opportunity to exceed expectations and we we had signed um darren collison Mm -hmm. and boyan bogdanovich and those two players i thought fit perfectly next to victor in terms of allowing him to have some space and so with Thad and with Miles, I thought we were going to be competitive. I didn't know we were going to win 48 games and be a, a super competitive team and take, you know, Cleveland. But, you know, hat tip to Nate and, and getting that group together and playing hard. And to me, to this day, that was the funnest year I've had in, in, in my career as an executive. What do you remember about the first day you met Larry Bird, walked into a locker room in Boston with Well, him? I'd actually met him when I was in high school, uh, when he was with the Celtics one of his first years. But, you know, um, a lot of memories with him because every single day for eight years as his general manager, I'd go into his office, whether he wanted me or not. <laughs> I went in there and we talked sometimes five minutes about basketball, sometimes three hours about basketball. But... Uh, amazing man. One of the smartest people I've ever been around. I mean, the wittiest. I remember one time the Atlanta Constitution called him up and said, Hey, listen, we're going to do a statue. And I remember this so vividly <laughs> is like, we're just in his office. Uh, the phone rings. Susie says, Hey, it's the Atlanta Constitution. They just want a, a real quick quote on Dominique getting his statue in front. And he goes, Hey, I need to take this real quick. So he gets on the phone. They ask him the question. He's on speaker and he goes, uh, the question is, you know, can you tell us about, you know, playing against Dominique in, uh, you know, the NBA? And he goes, yeah, I got one quote. I'll bet you it's not of him in a defensive stance. Click. <laughs> and he hits click and he goes right back to our conversation like it was nothing. I'm like, whoa, 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 Larry, I think you should call him back and maybe give a couple. He's like, no, that's, that's, you know, I, I thought he literally had that at the top of his tongue. It just comes so fast. It was, it, it was a great story. And for me, that's, that kind of typifies who he is and how fast he, he, he is with his mind. You know, the thing that's interesting about the, the immortals who become general managers. Now coaches, like there's more action in being a coach every day. Now he did that too yep. and did it really well, but you would always like the guys who became like Jerry West becomes runs a team. Isaiah Thomas runs a team. Uh, uh, Joe Dumars, Hall of Fame level players and Larry Bird that say was the hardest thing for them is like being chained to a desk is not easy. They're not wired that way and it right. takes more for them. But Larry did it and built 
and not every guy who was great at it could build a good organization or mm-hmm. had the patience to do all the little things along the way. Uh, was that tougher, Larry, day in and day out? Like to sit on the phone and talk to the agents and to make the small talk with other GMs. Like they're just wa- people who are wired differently, right? Well, Larry works the business. I mean, he literally watches a ton of games. He watches a lot of NBA. He watches college. I think for me right now, he probably enjoys watching the college guys and trying to help with the draft. Um, but, you know, he sends me texts. We communicate all the time. Um, he's geared for success. That's what he's yep. geared for. And I think his, his, his best thing that he does is he, he's very intelligent and he'll, he'll say, all right, this is your job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do it, and I'm going to hold you accountable to what you say you're going to do. And I remember I hear stories about when he coached, he gave Rick the offense and uh, Dick Harder, Dick Harder the, the defense, and he said, look, you're going to do this. I'm going to hold you both accountable. And as a coach, a first-year coach, that's brilliant. You know, I, I thought that was a way a lot of uh, coaches should do it, especially you know, starting. It's no different the way he was the president. You're the general manager. You get it done. I need you to get me players and recommend me players and get us prepared in negotiations. And and so, you know, you're beholden because he holds you accountable. You know, these players, like you'll be at the, I don't know, the combine, and they'll be running players in, you know, half an hour with each guy and – for the players, you know, like all the front office guys kind of look the same. They don't necessarily know who they all are. Or you'd bring a player in for a workout in Indiana. How different is it when Larry Bird's in the room and somebody comes in versus Larry Bird's not in the room? Uh, completely. What you see is people uh, looking over at them when they're playing. You know, you just really? see it all the time. Hey, that's Larry. But but for you, me, like other players, players you, that yeah. walk in. That are so iconic, they walk into the room and it, he just, the gravity moves to him. And for me, what I love about it is he's there all preseason. He sees our guys playing over the summer and he watches them every single day. And so you know that if Larry's watching you every single day, he's watching the details. And I think it, it, it gets players just to play a little bit better than maybe they would. Maybe they work a little bit harder that. July 18th that, that, you know, is just a random day. And, um, I think it elevates everybody. I know it did for me. I, kn- I knew that if I wasn't prepared when I was going to see Larry about a negotiation or a player, that could be embarrassing because he's, he's gonna, he's gonna be prepared. You know, for me, Kevin, when I think of being a teenager and following the NCAA tournament and people talk about the 83 NC State team, but like for me, I still think about the March. Let's see, I was 87, maybe I guess a f- freshman in college in 88 when you guys win it all. And it's funny. I was at the garden the other night for Kansas was playing. And I think Jay Billis said Kansas had, had not had as many turnovers in a game since 88. Hmm. And I believe it was a NSA tournament game with you guys that somehow you, you won. It is unbelievable to sit. And you sort of see it this week. They have like the ESPN Classic will run like tip-off classics from the 80s. And you're sitting there watching college basketball and you're going, good Lord. It's it's not the same sport anymore. But that 88 team, Danny and the Miracles at Kansas, do you still get asked about being on that team as I much do. as it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think probably more than anything is, you know, everybody wanted to know what it was like to play with Danny and how he had that incredible run because he was – 
really special. The thing that hits me all the time, I don't know if it's fortuitous or just random luck, but in the regular season, we had uh, Coach Brown had changed in terms of um, he put me at the point guard and Jeff Gildner at the two, and that wasn't my natural position. I was terrified. I was like, oh, my gosh, i got to play point guard, different position. He does that. We lose at home, and you don't lose at home in Allen Fieldhouse, but we lost right. three straight. We lost to Kansas State, then we lost to Duke, and then we lost to Oklahoma. And then fast forward three months. You played all three of them in a row, right? We played and beat Kansas State. In the final eight. In the final eight. Final four, we beat Duke. And in the final game, we beat Oklahoma. And I don't know. It's like, you know, how that happens. I don't know. In my mind still today, I can't get my my head around it because – that doesn't happen. That's that's a little strange, you know. And that's that tells me sometimes I I'll be watching a game and we'll say, "Oh, the basketball gods they, they're going to treat you this way or that way." Felt like that there were basketball gods that year. It's funny you look back at that championship. I was looking at the championship photo of you guys celebrating on the court. Was it in black and white? It wasn't black and white. <laughs> that's how you know you're old. Yeah, it wasn't black and white. Uh, and it's like there's R.C. Buford in a yeah. suit. There's Alvin Gentry. Yeah. Um, Pop was. There, I don't yep. remember seeing the photo, but Pop had had been a he, he'd been part of the program. He'd been part yeah. of the program. He yeah. had been a Division three coach in California. Calipari was there a couple years before. Bill Stuff Bill, was there a couple years before. Bill Bano was Bano, yeah. on that. I mean, it's it's. I mean, and so Larry Brown in that year at that time was probably at the peak of his ability as as I mean, he, he was a great coach for a very long time, but like that was quintessential Larry Brown in that era. Like he was at the top of his game and said, had a great staff, but like that season, Archie, Archie Marshall goes down in December, who was your guard. And people, I I had forgotten Mark Randall was on that team who was a first round pick the following year. He He redshirted. He redshirted. Did wasn't, didn't play. And was there any point, I guess, cause you had Danny Manning, did you always think we can beat anybody because we have Danny Manning? Did did that group imagine winning a national title? No, I mean we we started out the season we were number one strictly because of, of Danny and right. his talents. We really struggled in the middle of the season, and the injuries were yeah, devastating. We, we got we got hit by the injury bug, and then we just didn't play well. We and right in the middle of the year, uh, Coach Brown said, "Let's change the way we're playing and let's become." A really good defensive team. We're, I don't know what's going to happen on, on offense. We've got Danny, and he'll figure out how to make some plays. But let's become a really uh, tied together. He kept saying tied together defensively. And it took us a couple games, and we, we started ramping up and playing our best basketball right when we needed to. But I remember we walked on the court, and I remember looking around at Jeff Gildner and Milton Newton and Chris Piper and Danny, and I'd say, Man, we are really good defensively. You know, you're going to beat us. You're going to have to beat us with some pretty tight end guys in terms of helping each other. I thought our help to help defense was the best, you know, I'd, I'd ever been around. And, and one of the things is you walk out there and when you have that mindset, you, you know that a team is going to have to play well to beat you. You don't beat yourself. And then Danny just gave us such an edge offensively. Just get him the ball and spot up and make shots and we would have a chance to win. But, we, we did not in the middle of that season. I remember we had a team meeting and to this day, it was a gut check because we looked around the room. We were like, this is it. This is all we have. And either we're going to come together or we're not. 
and uh, we had some good leadership. Chris Piper was really a, a great leader, and Danny was a great leader, and uh, that team just said, we're, we're going we're gonna to do the best we can. We're going to be a great defensive team, and we'll let the, the cards play play out. But as, as the tournament kind of got towards the end, I, I felt the team – changed in that instead of we going out on the floor and saying you know we got this good defense and we got a chance to now you really got to beat us and I felt like towards the end coach Brown is really hard as a as a coach I mean he is in your butt every day and he had lightened up you know it's like he was changing as we were ramping up he was changing and I felt like we just got a mojo, uh, a confidence that by the time, I don't know if you could say, oh, yeah, we were going to win. It. No way. But I felt like we were going to be tough. And, you know, that was about as good a basketball feeling as I've ever had. That first half of the national championship game against Oklahoma, who I think people expected you guys to come out and do what NC State did against Faisal Majama, slow, it, slow down. it down. And you guys came out and just went at them. 50-50 at the end of the half. It was... At the 50th anniversary. Right? Basketball gods. Was that how Larry wanted you to play that night? Or did you guys just go out and... Is he going to listen to this? <laughs> I'm afraid he'll call me and yell. No, I mean, we were supposed to play at a, a, a better, a slower tempo. But throughout the game, he, he, you know, we just had opportunities. They were they were flooding four guys in the, in our backcourt to try to get turnovers in the backcourt mm-hmm. and leave it one back. And if we could just get it in and get one more pass forward, then we had a chance to have numbers. And I remember just keep hitting it forward and getting it to Milt and Jeff and Danny, and they were off and running. And we just had opportunities. And we sometimes the game lets you or, or tells you what you need to do. And when you have advances, you got to take them. And I, I, we just didn't hold back. I do remember coming at halftime. And going as 50-50 and being dead. I mean, literally dead. Uh, and going, I, I can't believe we have another half. And it slowed way down. And I felt like they showed that they were tired. Mm-hmm. And they made a little run. And then we made a run back. And then that was a game. B- Billy Tubbs was their coach. <laughs> you you grew up in Oklahoma. Did you think about going to o- OU? I did. I yeah. did. You know, they're recruiting thing was we're going to stay at the super nice hotels <laughs> we're going to stay at the <laughs> nicest hotels <laughs> okay but how am i going to get to the nba <laughs> i knew that i was yeah. going to kansas when, yeah. when i met coach brown and he yelled at me the first time he saw me play <laughs> i felt like that was going to be sort of what i wanted and you asked them right you asked them are you going to be there all four years and he said of course i will yeah. right yeah he made it two but you did win the national title in the second i'll take year. that i think most most players would take that but you know the way i look at it is you know, Coach Brown and Coach Williams, who I played two years right. with, have very similar backgrounds. Dean Smith, you know, yeah. it's that, that Dean Smith. Couldn't be completely – I mean, they are completely different uh, in their approach. And, you know, Coach Williams is just as hard without saying as many curse right. words. And I enjoyed that. So it worked out really well. That team and that championship, and you – like. Danny Manning down the stretch carries, I think, like 31 and 18 in that. Was that as, when you think back of like that piece of history, was, was that tournament run with him as dominant? Was he as dominant of a player in an NSA tournament run in a season than you've seen in college basketball when you uh, think back pound it. for pound? No, no question. And I, what's interesting about that is Danny turned into this different person. 
as soon as the NCAA tournament, Danny liked to have a little fun on campus, and he would, you know, go out in movies and do all the, yeah. you know, fun things on campus. It got to the NCAA tournament, and he totally changed. It was like his lights turned on, like, this is my life on the line. We're going to be as good as we can possibly be. And I'm going to show that I'm the best player in college basketball. And it, it kind of like hit all of us. I remember talking to Jeff Gilner going, Danny's not going out. He's focused. You know, he's not talking as much. He, he had one of those times where he knew what he wanted to do and he was going to do it. In this day and age, Danny would have been a one and done, right? For sure. Right? A hundred percent. That was sort of the last, that late 80s was a time where the great players still, it didn't even cross, I wouldn't say it didn't cross the because some did, but like the Duke guys were all staying four years. I think Elton Brand. All the Kentucky guys were Kentucky staying. Kentucky guys yeah, were staying. Indiana had some guys that could have came out. They stayed. You know, Rex Chapman came out, but he was one of the few. Yeah. Um, now, you know, to me, it was the, the pinnacle of uh, NCAA college basketball yeah. because the talent stayed. And so when you saw a game, it was a junior at playing to his best against a senior playing his best, not a freshman versus a freshman who's just come into college basketball playing, you know, two weeks of practice. It's, it's a completely refined, differently refined game back then. The other thing too, that to me seems similar to your upset of Oklahoma, because I think you were, you were underdogs, you know, significant underdogs in that game. Villanova Georgetown played in the same conference, had played them multiple times in a regular season. You had played Oklahoma multiple times. There wasn't that the familiarity helps the underdog in that situation. Without right? a doubt. Yeah. yeah. You know, we had seen them the first time we lost by eight, but it wasn't that. It was one of those games that the, the score didn't reflect in, in a bad way. Like we, they beat us by 20. We knew it. Uh, the second game was at Oklahoma and we had started making our changes and we lost by eight again, but it was on their road. We were a different team and we were changing. We were, you know, changing the way we played. And, and so, uh, the third time I, I never felt like we were scared of them. We, we didn't walk into that game going, Oh, they beat us by eight. We can't beat them. It was never that. I don't, I'm not sure we walked in the, the game and said, we're going to beat them, but, um, I think we were calmly confident. Kevin, this was great. I uh, appreciate you finally. We've talked about doing a pod in the past. Glad yep, we yep. got. Glad to do it. Glad we got to do I'm one. I'm still nervous though. I mean, oh geez. millions and millions yeah. of people. <laughs> Not quite, uh, Kevin. Good luck the rest of the season. Thanks. And uh, thanks for thanks for jumping in, man. I appreciate it. Yep, glad to do it. A big thank you to our guest today, Pacers President Kevin Pritchard. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you listen to podcasts, including the ESPN app. And also be sure to listen to a couple other great ESPN NBA podcasts, Zach Lowe and the Low Post Pod and Brian Windhurst Hoop Collective, all on the ESPN app or wherever else you listen to your shows. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening.